Good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 19. Continue making our way through the Gospel of Luke. We are now reaching the stage of the final week of uh, before the crucifixion in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19. And we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. As we study this passage, I'm not going to read the whole thing at once. I'm going to read just a couple of verses, make a comment on the passage, give you an overview of what is happening here. And then after, we're going to look at uh, more details about just a specific couple of phrases. So Luke chapter 19, verse 28, when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And so this is the official presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ as king to the nation of Israel. Um, He is, in this event, acknowledged by some who are poor, but rejected by the leaders. Verse 29, And it came to pass, when he came near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples. So I'll stop there for a minute. You won't get this in, in the English word Bethphage because it, it just says Bethphage. But it really literally means the house of figs. Bethany is a, means the house of dates. And he's coming from Olivet, which is the Mount of Olives. Okay, very good. So we have dates and figs and olives. And so when we name something like that, Uh, we're usually describing what the area is like, and this is what the area is like. It is full of dates and figs and olive trees. It's a more rural area, and he's coming from that area, from the the Mount of Olives, down towards the valley between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem itself, and if Sharon had her pictures up here, we would all see where, what it looks like, but it's... um, coming towards the city of Jerusalem. And he sends two of his disciples. It's interesting that the Lord often did that. Uh, He often sent out not lone rangers, but disciples or people out two by two. In fact, he commanded that of his disciples, to go out in twos, in pairs. Why do you think that is? There are very few good lone rangers. Um, And I think that all of us well, I can't speak for all of you, but I can speak for myself. <clears throat> I need others. I need you. I need the support, the care, the encouragement that another Christian brings uh, in my labor. And then that's what he does. He sends out two disciples uh, for the task. In Ecclesiastes 4, it says this, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. It's not a big task that they're sent out to do. They're sent to a a village across from where they're at, and their purpose or their goal is to get a donkey. And it's a small donkey. It's the foal, the colt um, of a donkey that they're to get. But he sends two. So he says in verse 30, saying to them, go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. I love this passage. It tells me something about the Lord Jesus. It tells me something about an attribute of the Lord Jesus. What is the attribute that is shown here? Go ahead, anybody shout it out. Humility, yeah, that's coming. Sorry, omniscience. Okay, omniscience means he knows everything. The Lord Jesus Christ, if he is truly God, he has omniscience. He knows everything. He knows everything about everything. He knows about this animal that is, in fact, if you look at the rest of the Gospels, you will find that he's even more specific than just saying you're going to find a colt tied up. He tells them where it will be tied up. And how it will be tied up. And he says to them, go, when you'll find it there, loose it and let it go. 
He knows everything about everything. He knows all about the animals because he created them and he sustains them minute by minute. Where they are, and he can call them into his service with just one word. All of the animal kingdom is subject to his command. Do you remember in Exodus when um, <clears throat> Pharaoh was keeping the, the children of Israel in bondage? And the Lord sent uh, Moses to Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. And Moses said, who is the Lord? Who is this telling me what to do? I'm the Pharaoh. And the Lord said through Moses, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. With just one word of the Lord, he was going to bring locusts into Egypt and terrorize the people of Egypt with one of his creatures. And he did it as well with frogs, didn't he? And with lice, didn't he? And so God can command, and he can bring down one of the greatest rulers who has ever lived, the Pharaoh of Egypt at that time. <coughs> Excuse me. In Isaiah 7, the prophet says, The Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the farthest part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. Those two references to the fly and the bee probably refer to the king of those countries and their armies, but... Regardless, the point of it is this, that all of creation, whether animals or armies, are subject to God, and he knows exactly where they're at, and he can call them at a moment's notice to do his bidding, whatever he wants them to do. Even the wicked, he can cause to praise him. So he knows there is an unbroken colt, the foal of a donkey, tied up. As I said, we know exactly where it's tied from the other Gospels. It's unbroken. He says that. It's never been ridden. He knows all about this donkey. Well, if he knows all about this donkey, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to believe that he knows all about you, and he knows all about me. In fact, the psalmist says that. O Lord, Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. He watched, and he knew who would stand and who would not stand. He knew who would stand up to sing a hymn and who would sit down at the end of it. He knows all about you. He knows everything. He's omniscient. Not only does he know your activities up and down, up and down, up and down, but he knows your thoughts from afar. The Bible says that. It says, you comprehend my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways, he says, for there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That's the kind of intimacy that the Lord has with you. He watches, he knows, he's aware of everything. He knows everything that is going on in your heart, everything that is going on in your brain. He knows every activity you're involved in. He knows it all. You cannot escape his notice. But let me ask you a question. Are you like that unbroken cult? Are you one who has never come under the subjection of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitted to his will, submitted to his ways in your life? The Lord knows all about you. You know, a donkey is actually a good animal. It's a burden bearer. It's an animal that lifts heavy loads. And it can be quite useful in that way. But it is also known as one of the most stubborn animals that exists on planet Earth. It is a stubborn, stubborn animal. And it is of very little value until it becomes broken and it humbly submits to its master. And for now, that colt remains tied up just in the other city across from them because it is unbroken. It's interesting that as soon as the donkey comes into the presence of the Lord, that that unbroken donkey can now be ridden by the Lord, its master. It knows its master. And as soon as it comes into the presence of the Lord, it becomes a broken, humble, 
contrite donkey. Useful and fit to carry the king of kings into the royal city at his bidding in, in fulfillment of prophecy. Are you like that unbroken donkey? Are you tied up for now because you're unbroken? You haven't bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus? You haven't submitted your will to Him? A human heart is much more stubborn than a donkey. And it is of little value until it becomes broken and humble and humbly submits to the Master. Here are the next words of the Lord in verse 31. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. The Lord not only knew where the animal was, what kind of an animal it was, but he predicted the exact conversation that would take place, and it did. Just as he said. That's what the Bible said and the psalmist said. He said, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. He knew in advance what was going to be said. Jesus is the King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day He will rule on the earth. And all of the animal kingdom, all of the wild animals will become domesticated. They will all be broken. So broken that the Scripture tells us that the lion will lay down with the lamb. Natural enemies now but then they will be uh, laying down together. Children will play on the snake's nest and not be hurt. And the proudest creature of all, human beings, just like you and me, will willingly submit to his rule over them. Notice Jesus said to tell the colt's owner that the Lord has need of him. That's what he called himself, the Lord. He calls himself Lord. That's a direct statement of his deity. Jesus Christ is Lord. And every knee shall bow. My friend, my sister, my brother, hear the words of the Lord. The Lord has need of him. And the Lord has need of you to serve him in a humble and a contrite manner, just like he's asking of this donkey to be broken, to be submissive to His will. Really, that we might begin every day with these words, copying the Lord Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. Lord, I want to start this day right. Not my will, but Your will be done in my life. Verse 35, Then they brought Him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. The act of taking their own clothes and making a seat uh, on the donkey for the Lord and spreading their clothes out before him to be trampled on uh, by the donkey uh, is really an act of honor and submission to the Lord. And for a brief moment, just for a brief moment, it was almost like the veil had been removed from their eyes and they saw Jesus for who He was, for who He is. He is the King. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And they showed respect and honor for Him at that moment. They gladly and willingly demonstrated that by removing their outer garments and allowing them to be trampled underfoot. They laid palm branches down, and some waved palm branches in the air, a sign of royalty and um, his regal uh, nature. This passage is often called the triumphal entry. You know, I don't know why we call it that, because it really isn't. But, you know, every uh, Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, um, churches all across the country and the world get out palm branches and they wave them and the kids do a little play and they put them down before, I don't know if the preacher walks, we don't do it here, but the preacher walks over it, I guess, I don't know. But um, 
And we call it the triumphal entry, as if the Lord were coming in to actually take over Israel. It's not a triumphal entry. It's a very humble entry into uh, Jerusalem. So just scratch that out if that's what it says in your Bibles. And Mine does, actually. It has that little title, the triumphal entry. I just scratched that out and put the humble entry. There's nothing triumphant about it. But it's clear. It is a clear fulfillment, however, of Zechariah 9.9. There it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 37, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You have to understand that Jerusalem at this time was swelling with visitors. Uh, People were coming to the city to celebrate the Passover. And there was a great anticipation among the uh, disciples that Jesus would finally reveal himself as the king. He would conquer Jerusalem. He would destroy the Roman Empire, and he would reign finally as the rightful place on David's throne. That's what they were expecting. He's told them that's not going to happen multiple times, but, you know, la, 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 they don't listen. And so they're still anticipating this. And as he's coming in this way, and now the crowds are swelling, and they're joining in the chorus and in the song, they're going, see, we're right. He's going to be king. Look at this. Where else would you find this? It's in fulfillment of Scripture, no less. The disciples could hardly restrain themselves. The clue to his first coming is found in the phrase, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Do you remember when the uh, angels um, announced his birth? What did they say? Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Now the phrase is peace in heaven, peace in heaven, and glory in the highest. Peace on earth cannot come because the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, will soon be rejected by the same crowds that are rejoicing at this moment. This is a very fickle crowd, by the way. This same crowd of people that have come to the Passover here are rejoicing and singing praise and worshiping, in a sense, the the king, and that's right. But a week later, they're going to say, with the crowds, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man reign over us. Peace on earth cannot come. Peace must first be made in heaven. We must be first reconciled to God because of our sin. And then he will come again, and then there will be peace on the earth. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Forever against the Lord, the Pharisees want an immediate end to this praise of the Lord Jesus, and they tell him to rebuke his disciples. If those who had been healed and saved did not cry out, then the, the stones themselves, the inanimate objects, would cry out praise to the Lord, because praise must come to him. The hearts of the Pharisees really are shown here to be harder than granite. As a summary, that's what this passage this morning is all about. And I could sit down, we'd be finished half hour early, and you'd all go home and eat dinner. But I want to take a couple of phrases first out of this passage and uh, look at them more carefully. This event was foretold in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So if you want to go there, I want to read two verses. Zechariah was written 500 years before this event. 
And so it's a prophecy. Zechariah was predicting something that was going to happen in the future. And here is the fulfillment of it um, 500 years later. I want to read just two verses, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this is a fascinating prophecy, and I don't know if you caught it or not, but there's a gap between, the word, between uh, verse 9 and verse 10. And that gap is more than 2,000 years in length. And so, as the prophet is looking for, we've often talked about this and maybe shown graphs and and graphics, on, on, and I should have had one today. But we often talk about prophets who, who foretold things about the coming of the Lord and how they often merged the two comings of Christ together. And so as they looked, and they're looking forward to the coming of Christ, they see two peaks. And those two peaks, from their vantage point, look like they blend into one. And so they see the first coming of the Lord, and they see the second coming of the Lord. And if you're looking at the right spot on earth at two mountain peaks, it could look like they're actually together. But if you keep going and you keep walking and you climb up on that first mountain, you say, oh, I'm at the summit of this mountain, and there's a valley between us and the next mountain. And so as the prophets looked forward to the coming of the Lord, they often saw the two comings merged together like those two mountain peaks. And what they didn't see was the church age that lay between them. That's what we're in now. And so as we are living in the church age, we look back at the first coming of Christ and say, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. Why didn't they see it? Because they weren't standing where you are. And we look forward to the second coming of Christ, and we go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so we have a passage just like that before us, verses 9 and 10. And in verse 9, we have the first coming of Christ, and he's coming as a humble, lowly servant. And then we have verse 10, which is 2,000 years at least, it might be longer, Uh, later that's talking about the second coming of Christ, where he will come as a conquering king. Totally different. Fascinating prophecy, separated by more than 2,000 years. Well, here's what I want to focus on today, is how the Lord presented himself in the first coming. Before I do that, I want to look back at history. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And in the Garden of Eden... Sin entered into the world because Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they took of the forbidden fruit. God had told them not to do that, and they did. And as a result, sin, they sinned, and sin was passed on to all men. And we're all sinners because all have sinned. People often ask the question today, why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why are there wars? Angelo and Tom both brought out in the uh, meeting this morning about the crime and the the terrible things that are going on all around us. Why do we hear about stories of crime and murders, the murder of innocent children just a few weeks ago? It's because of sin. Sickness is all around us. Friends and loved ones and family members suffer illness and disease, and finally we all end up dead. Death has its grip on us. And, we will ultimate, and it will ultimately be the victor over us unless someone can deliver us from its clutches. But not only did Adam's sin result in death for human beings, but also it caused all of creation to be out of whack. The, the entire creation, as we know it today, as beautiful as it may seem to us, it's out of whack. It is out of whack. I don't know if you follow the stories. There's a a volcano erupting in Russia right now. Uh, 
there's a volcano in Hawaii that is erupting constantly. The earth is shaking and shuddering. I, I follow, I, I have kind of a tracker thing that follows earthquakes. And uh, er, almost every morning, pow, earthquake here, earthquake there. You know, go to the usgs.gov and you'll find them all over the place. The earth is groaning. I heard last week that the sun is also groaning. It's spitting out its fire in volumes that they never expected. I'm probably not saying that right. I'm not a scientist. But it's doing stuff that it, uh, is surprising everybody. That's my uh, scientific uh, <clears throat> reference. <laughs> Stuff. And so all of creation is out of whack. Uh, not only is the earth like that, but the, uh, the Lord said that because of sin, that thorns and thistles and weeds would grow up and we would work by the sweat of our brow, that women would give uh, birth but it would be with pain. It would be suffering, suffering as a result of uh, giving birth. It's not the way God intended it to be. This is not the earth that he created and was good. It's different. And so all of creation was subject to futility, the Scripture says. Death and disease has corrupted the natural creation as well. The earth itself, the heavens, heave and groan um, and... It's almost like, the scripture describes it almost like this, that it's like the entire creation is sitting on the sidelines waiting. There's a, a game being played and we're in it, and creation is sitting on the sidelines waiting for the final event before everything is fixed, before everything is right. And that event is when God reveals who his sons are, who his children are. He's waiting for that event. But in the meantime, while creation waits, it groans. And the animal kingdom is also subject to this futility. Disease and death has come upon them. And creatures that at one time were peaceful and domesticated animals have been subject or subjected to the violence of sin. It's as if all of creation, both animals and the natural creation itself, is exhaling in one collective sigh of sorrow because of sin and the effects of sin. And some of you are hurting inside for the same reason. It's because of sin. The effects of sin are deep and they're painful. Some of you cry over your sins. Some of you shudder at the thought of what you've done in your life. Some of you sense that your sin has separated you from God. And had God left us on our own, we would be as those who have no hope. We would be without God. We would be without hope. We would be without an escape. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the midst of tears and sorrow and sighing and death all around us, God has actually called us. Go back to Zechariah 9 verse 9. He has called us to rejoice. Rejoice. In fact, it says, rejoice greatly. Now, I know I don't do things like this, but I want to show you what he means, okay? He means this. Woohoo! 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 Okay? I'm glad we're not filming it. <laughs> that is literally what it means. And I put that right here just to wake you all up. No, actually, he put it there. Rejoice! Rejoice greatly, he says. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. What God is saying here is this. Look, this is the way I want you to rejoice. Why? Because I'm here. I've come to save you. Rejoice in that. And so the people did rejoice. And that's why the Lord Jesus could say to the Pharisees, look, don't you get it? He didn't say it that way, but that's the way I'm saying it. Don't you get it? 
I've called you to rejoice at what I'm here to do. And if they don't say it, if they don't speak the praise, my praise, then the stones themselves, the inanimate ob- objects, the creation itself that is on the sidelines waiting for the sons to be revealed will speak up and say, Wahoo! Okay? He talks about that. The trees of the field clap their hands. Haven't you heard that? Okay, it says that in the scripture. Rejoice. And what is the reason for this rejoicing? Literally, it means spinning around. That's what it means. Why are we told to rejoice greatly and very much and again and again in good measure and loudly? That's all the uh, synonyms to what he's saying here. It's because Jesus came not to condemn us, but to save us. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And if you're lost this morning, he came for you. The verse says, he is just. What does that mean, that he is just? It means that he is perfect, holy, without sin. He is righteous. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But this verse tells me that Jesus is different. Jesus is just. That means that there is no fault in him. There is no flaw. There is no sin in him. He did no sin. He knew no sin. And in him, there is no sin. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing this, uh, or I'm sorry, in this passage that he is just, he alone can do something about our sin that we cannot do ourselves. And he will deal with our sin in a just way. So God's judgment for sin is death. And death must be exacted for each one of us who have sinned. But Jesus is the just one, the one who is without sin. And he alone can die for the sins of all mankind. And that's exactly what he does. And we'll see this in the weeks to come. He is just. The Bible says that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's wrath has been satisfied uh, because Jesus shed his blood for us, for me. Jesus, the just one. And, his, and he gives his own righteousness to all who by faith believe in him. The Bible says that um, in doing this, he demonstrates his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Zacharias says, rejoice greatly because he is just. And then he says, and having salvation. Did you notice that? What a wonderful Savior he is. Joseph, the um, adopted father of the Lord Jesus, was told by an angel, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in the beginning of his public ministry, the Lord came into the uh, temple. He uh, took the scroll that was given to him, and he read this passage before them. And it's found in Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he went out fulfilling the scripture. He said, this scripture is fulfilled this day in your ears. And then he went out showing or demonstrating the fulfillment of that scripture. And so I want you to think through with me for just a minute what he did to fulfill that scripture that he quoted. He healed a nobleman's sick and dying son in John 4. He healed a man who was possessed by a demon in Mark 1. He gave liberty to the captive. He took Peter's mother-in-law and raised her up from her sickbed, giving liberty to the oppressed. He healed all the people who came to him that night, um, who were sick and demon-possessed. He healed a leper, a centurion's servant, and a man who was paralyzed, and a man with a withered hand. He raised a widow's dead son to life as he was being carried to the tomb. 
he cast out a legion of demons from another man. And there was that woman who had the internal bleeding for 18 years, and she had spent all of her living on doctors who weren't able to heal her, and she wasn't any better for it. And he, she came, and she snuck through the crowd, and she touched the hem of his garment by faith, believing that he could heal her. And she was healed at that moment. And Jesus called for her to make public testimony of what she had just done. And he says to the crowd, who touched me? And his disciples said, are you kidding me? You're being bumped by everybody. But he knew a touch of faith. And she had touched him by faith and was healed that very moment. And he wanted to expose her faith to the crowd. There was the woman at the well who was a broken her whole life was broken. One broken relationship after another. She had a broken heart. She had many husbands. And the one she was now living with was not her husband at all. And every one of those relationships ended in disaster. And she was looking for love, but she was looking for love in all the wrong places. Jesus saved her soul that day. He healed blind men, giving sight to the blind. He healed the mute man and gave him a voice to sing praise to God. The lame were made to walk, and Jairus' daughter was made to live again. He fed a crowd of 5,000 men and their families. And then he fed another crowd of 4,000 men and their families. He healed a deaf man who had a speech impediment, a blind man in Bethsaida, a man born blind, and a young boy who was possessed with demons, and the demon was constantly throwing him down and throwing him into the fire, trying to destroy, because that's what Satan does. He tries to destroy us. And God came in human flesh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us. And whether it was dropsy or the ten men with leprosy or bringing back Lazarus from the dead, Jesus healed the brokenhearted and proclaimed liberty to the captives. And many of these thousands of people believed on the Lord and were saved. And the crowd that went before him into Jerusalem that day, and the crowd that followed him as he rode on that donkey, and those who sang the praises of the Lord that day, I believe many of those people were the very ones whose lives he had touched and healed and saved. And those were the ones whose voices were used and their tongues were loosed and they, they employed uh, their tongues in the praise of the Lord. And I can just imagine the conversations that must have taken place as they walked up the hill towards Jerusalem and as they thought about what Jesus had done in their lives and they couldn't help but spin around and give praise to the Lord for what he had done in their lives. I can imagine the conversation sounded like the words of a song I recently heard called He Saw It All. It's about a man, he says, I was working in town one afternoon attending some business affairs. I heard a commotion a couple streets over and wondered, what's happening there? A young man was running from in that direction and stopped just to catch his breath. I asked him to please tell me what was the hurry. He, he smiled up at me and he said, I was trying to catch the crippled man. Did he run past this way? He was rushing home to tell everyone what Jesus did today. And the mute man was telling myself and the deaf girl, he's leaving to answer God's call. It's hard to believe, but if you don't trust me, ask the blind man. He saw it all. Ask the blind man. He saw it all. My friend, if the troubles and burdens you carry are heavy and dragging you down, and you've tried everything you can possibly think of, but there's no relief to be found. That very same Jesus that altered the future of the blind man, the deaf, and the lame, he's still reaching out. In your hour of trouble, one touch, and you're never the same. And that's what the prophet Zechariah said about Jesus. He is just and having salvation. His entrance into the world and into the city of Jerusalem and into your heart is all for the same reason. It's for salvation. There is no other Savior but Jesus. And he is offering his salvation to you. How is one saved? Well, it's really, really simple. It's simply this. You admit that you're a sinner. 
But you know, we're just like that donkey. We're so unbroken. We're so stubborn. We go, me? A sinner? Are you kidding? Preacher, look in the mirror. I have. I'm the chief. I'm the chief sinner, not the chief of the church. I'm the chief sinner. But look in the mirror. That's your condition before God if you don't know Him. And He's asking you to just look at yourself. Admit that you're a sinner and that He is your only Savior. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. But people are so proud, so arrogant, so haughty, that they say, no, I'm not going to go to heaven that way. I'm going to earn my way to heaven. It doesn't work that way. You can't get to heaven that way. You cannot save yourself. You cannot do enough good works in your entire life to erase one single sin. Do you know that? You don't have a lifetime long enough to erase one. And how many have you committed? A lot more than one. But the Bible says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God. For he, (laughs) I love it, he will abundantly pardon. That's the Lord we're talking about. Zechariah says, Your king is coming to you lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus fulfills the scripture when he rides into Jerusalem this day. But he demonstrates by riding into Jerusalem this day, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that he is also the same king who will come and fulfill Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10. He is coming again. And when he comes again, he will come not riding on a coal on a donkey. He will ride instead on a white horse, and he will come as the conquering king, the one who will set up his reign on the earth. And just like the prophet saw the two mountain peaks and didn't see the valley in between, we're in that valley now, and I think, brothers and sisters, we're very close to that second peak. He is coming again, and he will ride uh, into Jerusalem, and he will establish his kingdom It is the same Jesus who arrives not in a lowly and humble way as he did here, but he will come again and his dominion will be from sea to the river and to the ends of the earth, or from the river to the ends of the earth, it says. First, he came in a lowly and humble way. You know, it's amazing to me to think about Jesus coming that way to present himself as the rightful king, not just of Jerusalem, not just of the Jews, but the rightful king of all the earth, of the heavens, of the whole universe. And look at how he came. He is God. He is God. And he came lowly. A righteous, holy God, whose creatures had sinned against him, and his entrance was like this. He first came in a lowly and humble way. And you know, it really shows his lovely character. The Lord came, his birth was humble, wasn't it? He was born of a uh, virgin. She was a peasant woman. She was, he was born in a small little town that nobody had really ever heard of. He was born and he was placed in a stinking barn. Really, it was just a hole. It was a place where they kept animals. I'm sure it stunk. Placed in a manger, in straw, a place where the animals would feed. This is God who came to earth for us to die on the cross for you and for me. And then to be rejected by men, to go out and to say to his disciples, or to those who wanted to follow him, the foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Talk about the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to come in Jerusalem that day, it's, I've been told, I don't know if this is correct or not, but when a conquering king would come into a, a city, he would ride a white horse, he would ride in triumph, he would ride as the conqueror. But when a king came to take over a city 
to offer them terms of peace, he would ride in on a donkey. And that's what the Lord has done. Not even the donkey, the youngest of the donkeys, he came in lowly. Shows his character. But, you know, Paul writes about this. He says in Philippians 2 about Jesus who humbled himself. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Born as a baby, born in a barn, laid in a feeding trough, born to a peasant woman, adopted by a tradesman, lived in Nazareth, a despised village. Remember what it was said about Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And here he comes as a lowly king offering terms of peace. One day he will ride in on that white stallion. I'm looking forward to that day. But he is king because God says so through the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king comes, but he comes lowly. I'm glad he came that way. I'm glad that Jesus didn't come to clobber us. I'm glad that he didn't come to break us in the sense of um, abolishing us. I'm glad that he didn't come to condemn us, to yell at us, The Bible says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Here's how humble he is. He comes and he offers his salvation to you. Think about that. To me, that's even more astounding. He is the king. And yet he wants to make his throne in your heart. Your heart. Imagine that he wants to keep company with you. And me. He eats with sinners. Now you can rejoice. Rejoice greatly. And shout for joy. He is a king. Um, He wants to come in and take over your heart. And take over your life. And he wants that unbroken will of yours to come under submission to him. That's what he wants. Is that really too much to ask for the one who is Lord over all? I don't think so. Well, we need to make some application to our own lives, don't we? See, we've been bitten by that serpent, Satan, who himself lifted up his head in pride and said to the Lord in the presence of the angels, I will be like the most high God. That's what he said. Talk about pride. Talk about arrogance. But that's the same kind of thing that he wants in us. Satan would just love for us to be the same way, to follow in his footsteps and boast of how great we are. But it says in that same passage in Philippians 2 about Jesus humbling himself and becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross, the beginning of that passage says this, let this mind or let this attitude be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the application of that passage. Philippians 2 says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Esteeming others better than myself? Are you kidding Is that what he's really asking us to do? Yeah. We need to be honest. I'll be honest first. This is utterly foreign to me. And it's probably foreign to you. But you see, when Christ calls us to follow him, it's because we're not following him. We're going the other way. And if he calls us to to follow him and to have this mind, his mind in us, this attitude in us, it means that it's foreign to us. It's something that we're not used to. It's something that we don't find natural. Being number one, we like that. Being promoted, 
promoting my own interests, having a high opinion of myself and a low opinion of others. All these things show that the lowly way of the master is unfamiliar to me. If those are the things that are in my heart, in my ways, then I'm unfamiliar with his, esteeming others better than himself. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What do we need to learn? For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But if we follow him, he's going to lead us down paths that we're not used to. And he's going to take us to places that we may feel uncomfortable. It may mean that I don't care who gets the credit. It may mean that I don't care who gets the credit for the ministry or for the work or for the fruit that comes from it. And I will look out for the interest of others and esteem others better than myself. In fact, I will esteem the lowliest brother better than myself. You see, the way up in, in the Christian life is really the way down. Okay? We don't exalt ourselves. Instead, we humble ourselves. And he will exalt us in due time. May the Lord so humble us that when we look up, we will see the feet of everyone else around us. I think of the Lord Jesus in John 13. It says, So when he had washed their feet, his disciples' feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, happy are you, blessed are you if you do them. Go back to that rejoicing. I won't spin around again. But that's what he's saying. If you do these things, that's the kind of joy that will fill your heart. You will rejoice greatly because the master, the king, has come and he's reigning in your heart. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we bow the knee, we bow our hearts to you, and we say, Lord, you are the king. Be king of my life. King of my life, I crown you now. Thine shall the glory be. Lord, we want to shun glory or exaltation and give it all to you. You are worthy, Lord, and we thank you so much for what you've done for us. We think of your humility of coming from heaven, becoming a man, going to the cross for me. Lord, what a transaction. What condescension. Lord, as we think about what you've done for us and how you have washed our feet, we pray, Lord, that we might take it upon ourselves to wash feet of others as well, and that, Lord, we would not have high thoughts of ourselves, but high thoughts of you. We ask, Lord, that you would change us from the inside out. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.